0: Hello and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is the podcast that endeavors to explore a full-spectrum spirituality. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm really glad you're here today. Okay, today's episode is another Dharma talk that I give on Monday nights. Uh, These are released one week after the live presentation of the talk, and this talk explores uh, two interpretations of a very famous story that's sometimes called a Zen story or a Taoist story. Um, It's believed to come from China, and it involves um, kind of the worldview of a wise Chinese rice farmer. Um, It's called Good News, Bad News. Who knows? And as I try to explore in the talk, there's a few layers of interpretation around this parable. Um, The way I initially interpreted it uh, is that I I felt like I, as a practitioner or someone new to the path, I had to adopt the mindset of this wise Chinese rice farmer. And that kind of put me into a position of being rather indifferent or detached from my life because in in some ways I was adopting a spiritual posture. And um, as I exploring the talk, I I think that's a limited interpretation. I think a deeper interpretation is one that the story is pointing to a very holistic uh, view of life that uh, is embodied by this farmer and that the the, the farmer's kind of repetitive phrase that he uses, good news, bad news, who knows, that phrase he uses is actually an articulation of his realization. It's an articulation of how he sees the world, And if we listen to it closely enough, it it actually has a a very literal meditative instruction for us. And that's what I try to uh, explore in in today's talk. But before I dive into the talk, uh, I just want to say if you are receiving any value in these talks or any of the interviews that I have on the podcast, your support of the podcast is very appreciated. And just listening to it is is support alone. So I I just want to appreciate you for your attention and presence here. But if you do get value and you think of it, please consider sharing an episode with a friend, either through an email or over through your social network channels. And if you're interested in learning more about yin yoga, uh, Chinese medicine, meditation, yang yoga, please head over to my site. There's a few links in the show notes um, where you will be directed to either some of the online courses that Terry and I have put together that explore those topics, or you could consider being a, becoming a member of our online practice community that we're calling our Summer Sangha. And uh, regarding the Sangha, uh, in this month we have changed the, uh, the schedule of our four classes. We've changed one of the class times. Um, my Specifically, my class on Wednesday, which is normally at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, my Yin Yoga class on Wednesdays is now being moved uh, and being held at noon Eastern Standard or 12 p.m. Eastern Standard. And that is that change is, is, a, is a, an effort to accommodate uh, many of our students in Europe who are unable to attend uh, the 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So if you've been at all interested in uh, practicing with me and Terry, you can do that through the Sangha and you can do that for free as a beneficiary member. Um, and or you could support us uh, as a sustaining member, and we really do rely on uh, member support uh, for our operation costs and, and livelihood, really. So any support is appreciated, but we also want to make I'm sure teachings are available for anyone that is unable to provide monetary support due to financial hardship at the moment. Okay, and with that, I will now give you today's talk, Who Knows Good News, Bad News? Who knows? So as I sort of established at the beginning of this year, uh, I want to spend a good chunk of time, um, probably in the order of a few months. Looking into uh, reflections around um, the difficult energies that arise in practice um, in Buddhism, these these difficult energies are described as the hindrances, um, the, the usual suspects, or the the, the the setting set the 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 setting header name is what I'm looking for. The setting header name for them is desire, aversion, restlessness, sleepiness, and doubt. And um, I think. It's it's really important to have tools for how to work with these energies, um, and and one of the fruits of learning how to work with them skillfully is that uh, an experience of stillness, sometimes referred to as samadhi. But as we the, the more skillful we are with these difficult energies, the more readily available samadhi, calm, still spaces are for us. So there really is an upshot to it. It's not just like we're going to focus on. Challenges to be kind of um, stern, <laughs> grim practitioners, but really learning to work with the difficulties so that so that the the fruit and the and the real benefit of practice is more um, um, tangible in a way. And in preparing for this week's talk, I you know a th- thought I had was um, I, I started reflecting about a story that I remember hearing early on in my own practice life and i'm sure it's a story many of you have heard as well but i think the story and the way i'm going to try to analyze the story i think the story is is a good lens through which to look at the issues of say desire aversion liking disliking etc and the story uh depending on the the, the telling um, has different renditions and it also has different um sort of origin uh, connect, connections to it. Sometimes it's called a, a Chinese parable. Sometimes it's called a Taoist parable. Sometimes it's called a Zen parable, depending on the context. Um, but it's essentially a story about a Chinese rice farmer, a very poor Chinese rice farmer. And um, <clears throat> this rice farmer was married. He had a wife. Uh, he had a few daughters, but no sons. And... and Back at the day when this was going on, uh, when he was alive, uh, you know, the, the the family continuance was dependent on having sons at, at this time. So uh, for a while this this farmer's wife was very unhappy. She's like, Oh, why we have we have no luck, the, the, the fortunes don't shine upon us, we don't have no, we don't have a son. I need to give you a son. And and the farmer, just when, when his wife would complain about not being able to give him sons, she, He just said, well, good news, bad news. Who knows? So you probably heard a version of the story. And again, it has different um, features or facets depending on the telling. But as the story, as you might imagine, at some point, luck will have it. Like luck strikes and the wife um, is pregnant and she bears a son. So she's now delighted. She's overwhelmed with joy. We have a son. Finally, there's an heir to to your fam, to, to the farm, et cetera. And, and the farmer just responds. He says, well, good news, bad news. Who knows? And as the son gets a little bit older, um, around the age of 12, one of the family um, horses escapes. And you know they only had I think two horses in this telling, so two horses. One 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 horse escapes, and it's it's the equivalent of losing half of your uh, your investment strategy, just going down the drain. Like one horse, your know, half of your assets are gone. And so, and not to make this a, a sexist version of a story, but the wife does sort of wail and cry and say, "Oh, it's so terrible. We lost the horse. Now we're so poor. We don't. You know, what are we going to do? How are we going to make this up?" such terrible such terrible fate and fortune and the husband the, the the farmer simply says good news bad news who knows and of course the horse escapes but then at some point the horse returns and it's somehow attracted a bunch of friends from the other side of the mountain so the horse comes back with a with a flock of of horses with him, wild horses with him. And and then now everybody's excited, including the neighbors like, wow, look at your fortune. You have not not just one horse, you have six horses. That's amazing. You've multiplied your, your fortune just overnight. How wonderful. And of course the farmer says good news, bad news, who knows? And then while training the new wild horses that have come to the farm, and the son was involved in the training. And then again, he was about 12 years old. And he, during one training session, gets thrown from his horse and he breaks his leg. And now the mother is unconsolable again. She says, Oh, this is so terrible. Our son, our only son, has now broken his leg. What good is he? This is so terrible. The farmer says, Good news, bad news. Who knows? And then in the final iteration of the story I know um, it just so happens around the time that the son breaks his leg. Uh, the country goes to war and the generals come around recruiting every able male above the age of 10 to serve in the army but because the son has broken his leg he's not able to serve and now the mother's like well our son's life is spared he's he'll live he won't go die in this stupid war and the farmer once again says good news bad news who knows Just out of a show of hands, raise your hand if you've heard that story or a version of that story before. I think most everybody, most of you will have heard. And if you haven't, it's a, it's a good story to know. Um, now, when I first heard this, and I was in my early 20s at the time, um, I think my interpretation fit in with, with what I would call a, a common interpretation. That this is a, a, a parable about the wisdom of non-attachment. It's a parable about realizing and recognizing that life is up and down. There's going to be good events, not so good events. There's going to be gain. There's going to be loss. There's going to be health. There's going to be illness. There'll be death and birth. And there's a certain sense the story is trying to say that uh, we can adopt a wiser position towards these ups and downs. And as I reflected on that, I thought, well, it's sort of sort of saying that, you know, if things are pleasant, the wise position, the wise stance would be if, if things are in the upswing, things are feeling good, sunny, warm, healthy, whatever, things are going in your stride. If that's the case, the wisdom seems to be saying something like, don't cling, don't cling, just enjoy it, but know that it's, it's, it's not going to last, it's going to change. And, and so don't get, don't get too attached to this. Don't cling to it. And various forms of that get, get kind of, um, they show up in different, different forms of spiritual teaching. And then, you know, the, on the other side, if things are unpleasant, this, the wisdom stance of this parable would say, well, you know, it's going to change. Things are always going to change. There are going to be ups and downs, oscillations that are coming and going. It's bad now, but grin and bear it and it will pass. Or as a different line of spiritual wisdom says, "This too shall pass." This too shall pass, and I reflected on that phrase a little bit this week. And I, a and I, and I, thing that started to occur to me is that in all of these phrases, whether it's the good news, bad news, who knows, or "this too shall pass," it's almost as though the person speaking those those phrases, like or repeating them, is trying to adopt an intellectual position or an intellectual frame about dealing with difficulty. Like something's really hard to be with. And we kind of talk or, or coach ourselves with these phrases, this too shall pass. It's, it's impermanent. Everything's impermanent said the Buddha. So we just let wait till this impermanence announces itself in it. And this difficult thing changes or goes away. Other, other language around, comes up around letting it go. If something's unpleasant, you know, we often talk, coach ourselves, let it go, let it go. And it all kind of reminded me, <laughs> what did I write here in my notes? It reminded me of an, a, a sort of an approach to life that's not dissimilar to what I remember from my, my two years of boarding school, where when you're at the dining hall and you load up your plate with food, you know, you have your dessert that's going to be okay. The dessert was like institutional dessert was not amazing, but it was palatable and it made the unpleasantness of institutional mystery meat covered in gray, like gray <laughs> tough leathery meat covered in gray it made that bearable knowing that that could, we could, you could poke around that, move that, that plate of mystery meat around on your plate a little bit, and then you can get to your dessert. And there's something similar about this, this sort of intellectual stance of trying to adopt a, a, a position of wisdom in relationship to the pain or discomfort that we're experiencing, the unpleasant. And as the more I thought about it, it, it occurred to me that this intellectual, spiritual position, or what I'm gonna to refer to as spiritual posturing, is 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 kind of what one does to tolerate misery born of imagination. Misery born of imagination, which was best summarized um, by a an Irish author named Patrick McGinley. And I, again, read this over 20, when I was in my early 20s. Um, it's one of the only things I've ever remembered from any book. But there was this passage where he says, a character says, tolerable misery is the only option for those cursed with the perception of other possibilities. You can imagine being some way somewhere else. Now, and and this cuts both ways. Let's say something's good. Say like things are, you're experiencing the upswing of life. You got a new job. Maybe you got like a, a loan or grant given to you, or just finances or works going well, loves going well, health's going well. Everything's going well. But there's like a little voice in the back of your mind that knows there was a period when before this was going so well. And you've lived through stuff before that didn't have all the bells and and bright lights of of good times. You know that. And the knowing of that generates a background atmosphere in many of us, at least in myself, too. But generates a background atmosphere of anxiety. Knowing that we're, we're we're trying to like preserve or safeguard or hold it together something that's good, within the knowledge that it's impermanent, within the knowledge that it's changing, within the knowledge that what goes up comes down. And likewise, when something's bad, um, you know we can you can either imagine how it will go much worse. And that can trigger a, a more uh, intense form of anxiety. Or um, you start to imagine like what it could be like, and you feel bad that you're not in that better situation. So so this idea that uh, like the human capacity for imagination, which is, is a wonderful thing. I'm not saying we should get rid of our imagination. But from a spiritual perspective, from an existential perspective, our imagination, if we uh, kind of are held within the implications of it, our imagination will sow the seeds for discontent, for agitation, for suffering. Or as and, and one of you reminded me of this, this folk singer a few weeks back, John Prine, uh, had a wonderful song. I don't even know the name of this the title. Song. I meant to look that up, but I've quoted it many times in the past in talks. And it was a line that I remember hearing a a singer in Ireland sing years back in a pub. But the the chorus is, you're up one minute, the next you're down. You're in a half an inch of water, and you think you're going to drown. And that's the way the world goes round. That's the way the world goes round. You're up one minute, the next you're down. You're in a half an inch of water, and you think you're going to drown. That's the way the world goes round. What I like about that phrase, at least from a Buddhist perspective, is, in Buddhism, there's a, a, a reflection on the eight worldly winds. And I didn't review this before the talk. I'm just thinking about it now. So if I don't get the exact eight worldly winds down, um, I, I ask your forgiveness. But it's things like gain and loss, shame, uh, fame and disrepute, um, happiness and sorrow, and one other pair of oscillations. Where the, 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 these things that are up and down, the, these worldly winds that blow us around. And, you know, I hear the Buddha saying, it's like, that's the way we move through the world. We're blown by these winds of gain and loss, fame and disrepute, uh, happiness and sorrow, etc. And coming back to the story of our our, our rice farmer, I, I have to question, is his wisdom is the depth of what he's saying in that one statement, good news, bad news, who knows? Is it—is it really just an intellectual position of coaching yourself of how to respond to things when they're not so much to your liking? Is that just what it is? Is it meant to be a position of, 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 of an intellectual stance or posture? And some of you are wagging your head, and I and I agree. I'm not. This is not what I would say is the the, the position that the, the, that the rice farmer is speaking from. So what I think might be intimated by this story, and I've been really thinking about it all last week, and and sitting on it, sitting with it in my meditation. What I think is he's getting at is first is the understanding that good and bad are two sides of the same coin. And this is a, a very difficult thing for a sort of egoic mind, not, a, not an egotistical mind, but a mind that um, is sort of predicated on being separate from what it's aware of, whereby in that perception of separation, we, we tend to have through our the way we use our attention, we tend to let the awareness or the attention pick up specific features of of the context of what we're aware of and we we, in in seeing things partially seeing only the part of what's happening we take we adopt a partial as opposed to an impartial we, we adopt a partial perspective a biased perspective one that favors one thing over another but i think what this farmer is getting at is that the good only stands out in contrast to something relatively worse. When we notice something good in our life, the recognition of its goodness is by definition dependent on a context of not so goodness. And and vice versa. Bad only emerges from a context of of relative good. In a way. And I think particularly because it's being couched as a Taoist or a Zen story here, that there are rice farmer is looking at life holistically in its totality. He's not, his consciousness is not constrained by a partial perspective of only liking the positive, only avoiding the negative. There's a wisdom in his mind and heart that recognizes the interdependence of both, and so the key thing here is, and this is this is a, an interpretation I have not heard given, and it may be just because of the way the translation that I'm working from this this phrase "good news, bad news," who knows? That may not be the the, like, the way someone else might translate that um, into English, but I think there's a clue in his phrase that he repeats like it's, it's the clue is hiding in plain sight in what he's saying and and that phrase that he keeps repeating is what i'm going to recommend we use as a meditation instruction tonight so there's there's instructions embedded in his phrase good news bad news who knows when there's good experience in meditation when we're receptive to the good We honor the truth of the good. When it's pleasant, we know it's pleasant. So far, so good. That's instruction one. When we're sitting and there's something unpleasant, a numbness, an itch, a restlessness, a fear, a pang of anxiety, yada, 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 all the things that are challenging. When something unpleasant comes up, the practice is to affirm the truth of our experience. That's what I was speaking about two weeks ago, the yes mantra. Awareness just affirms what is in our experience. It affirms the truth of what we're experiencing. Without saying it can't be there or it has to stay, it just acknowledges this is what it's like. It's like this. So good news, bad news. The high, the low, whatever comes up in practice in terms of content and experience. We're encouraged to just register it as it is, honestly. Not doing anything about it necessarily, at least in the instructions I'm giving tonight, just to acknowledge it and know it for what it is. But the second part of the the third statement here, good news, bad news, we affirm both when they arrive. But our wise rice farmer says, who knows? Now, that could be in English, kind of like a a flip kind of statement. Like, who knows? I don't know. Is it good? Is it bad? Who knows? I don't know. It could could be interpreted that way. At that level, you can hear it just at the simple kind of like shrug of the shoulder. Who knows? I don't know. Who knows? But what if the wise old rascally rice farmer was actually giving us a very powerful teaching, who knows good, who knows bad. And right in that instruction, if we take it, if we interpret it that way, who is it that knows good? Who is it that knows bad? And then the, And this is what I was trying to speak to a lot, a lot last fall. Now, instead of focusing on the content of good and bad experience, we're opening the mind to reference and sense its own nature. It's own nature to be aware, to receive, to hold. This is where I, I drag out my my pen, is my pendulum uh, device or my, my pendulum, my pendulous, pen, my an analogous pendulum that will try to illustrate a meditative point here. And some of you have seen me do this before. But the, if you have a pendulum with a pivot point where the, the arm of the pendulum swings, down here you have high, low, high, low, high, low. And when we're when our sense of being is out at the end of the pendulum of experience, swinging with the high, despairing at the low, swinging with the high, hold trying to hold on, but then we're back in the low, and then we're high, and then going back and forth. When we're down here, when our center of being is down here, we experience the John Prine lyric: "You're up one minute, the next you're down. You're half an inch of water, and you think you're going to drown." And life is at that point a kind of a if you if you approach spirituality from down here, your practice is again one of basically tolerating a miserable existence, patching yourself up with spiritual spiritual phrases to adopt an intellectual posture, which ultimately is just one of tolerating misery, tolerating discomfort. But as we practice, and if we start to rest into who knows, and I try to say this in different ways, but we travel up our center. It's not that we, it's the pendulum stops swinging, but while the pendulum is swinging, our experience, our center of gravity shifts from the end of the spec of the pendulum that's, that's, that's feeling out of control. And we start to rest back more and more and more and more into the source of the pivot, the pivot point source itself that knows good, bad, good, bad, good, bad. And the thing about that pivot point is that it's capable of holding anything. It's not violated by a thing. It doesn't matter what you think. It's unsullied by thoughts. It's undisturbed by emotions. It's unruffled by sound. And until we rest into that and come to sense it ourselves, to feel it ourselves, to know it ourselves, we're just going to be kind of adopting what I'm trying to say is an intellectual posture of spirituality. Trying to cognitively get our ego to be like, oh, when things are bad, good news, bad news, who knows? When things are difficult, this too shall pass. I read it in a spiritual book. That's a posture. And I, I've done it many, many years. So I'm using myself as an example, so that if you're here at your own mind, sometimes you're like, "Oh, am I adopting a posture?" And not to be negative or self-critical, but just to acknowledge, like, "Oh, maybe there's something else behind the posture," which is what I'm trying to point to. So, in practice, when we sit, you now this is an opportunity, and, and again, I try to say this and. Similar ways, but 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 slightly different ways from time to time. And the idea is that the sitting is a special container of stillness, or relative stillness, whereby we can start to see our mind's habitual responses to very ordinary stimuli. So you're sitting, you're just minding your own business, you're on your perch, your mind, you're being receptive, and then the twang in your hip, bad news. And then the like the fear oh my if it goes on like this for the whole half hour this will be a really unproductive meditation and if i'm having one unproductive meditation after the next do i even deserve to be in the sangha <laughs> i mean there's there's serious meditators i can hear them in the discussion session they, they people here are going for it they know what they're doing they've been doing it for a long time they're serious people but if I can't have a productive meditation, how am I supposed to stay here? Something like that. Or even worse, you sit down, you relax, you're receptive, your mind gets quiet. And the little voice says, this is it. Oh, my God. I've never been so calm. This is amazing. I... Shit, where did it go? God, it was just here let me be extra still let me press my thumbs down. <laughs> try to recreate what it was that brought around this this, this state this temporary state of stillness and practice practice is going to just do that like from day one to year 40 up and down up and down, up and down. And as I try to say recently, in some ways, practice will exhaust and reveal the futility of any attempt of the heart to do something else. When you sit and you get familiar with your ups and downs over and over again. You try to rearrange it as much as you can and patch it up with this and that. But at the end of the day, the nature of experience is the nature of experience. And when the when all the escape routes when all the escape routes close. It's another way of saying it, when we finally surrender to this, not trying to put a face on it, not trying to technif- te- technique it into a better this, but when we just surrender to this. That is kind of the energy of sorts by which. The ground of our awareness can be known when we're no longer focusing on a specific thing within the field of our attention. We're not trying to turn the spotlight on this or that or up here or down. But when we let our awareness diffuse, become soft, diffuse light of awareness that just opens to and embraces the totality of whatever it is we're experiencing. Within that, that is the condition or one of the conditions that allows for the recognition of who we are to step forward. And who we are, I'm not talking about defining who we are by any language, word, statement, thought, etc. Whatever we say we are, that's just, again, it's like saying, I was trying to think of an example here, but it's like saying, the bell, the sound of the bell is precisely the sound of the bell that comes about when the mallet or the striker hits this particular green bell from Tibet uh, that was, you know, made in some place, part of uh, some part of Tibet at a certain time. And it gives this, it creates a pitch of like a, a middle C maybe. I don't know. I don't know what pitch it is, but it gets, it's like describing the sound of the bell with all these words related to the artifact of the bell and what I could intellectually construct around what the sound of the bell is. But nothing I say will sound like this. That's why the Buddhists ring a bell. It's meant to be a shocking statement of truth. that arrests our normal tendency to conceptualize and relate to our world through thought. So that's where we're going. Um, I wrote down this. I don't know if this will make sense to some of you, but it's, when we look into who knows, we look into our, our experience that knows what the good, knows the bad. We're, in a sense, resting into a presence. So we're, we're coming to an authentic sense of presence in ourselves. But if you take apart that word, and this is i going to play with words a little bit, but presence, if you, if you, if you split it apart, you get pre-sense. That which is aware prior to sense experience, that which is aware prior to sense experience. So prior to a thought, prior to a sensation, prior to a sound, there's a dimension in all of us that is a bright, luminous, roaring silence. And that is, in a sense, what um, many, if not all, of these, these wisdom traditions that I've, I've looked at are pointing to. There's a ground of being, a, a, a capital S self, a no self in Buddhism, the Atman, an unchanging soul, whatever, different traditions dress it up in all sorts of different language. And again, the words around it won't be what it is. It's much more obvious than any word can contain. But this, again, comes back to why, in practice, we let things be as they are. Okay, thanks so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed today's talk. And if you would like to take on a more active uh, participation with these talks and join the Sangha, where you can attend the live deliverance of these talks and engage with a meditation practice and join the discussion afterwards, or take any of the other yoga classes that we offer throughout the week, please check out our Uh, Sangha membership opportunity in the show notes of of this episode, or head over to joshsummers.net forward slash Sangha, S-A-N-G-H-A. I hope you're doing well. I hope uh, your practice is going well, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Until then, take good care.